Welcome to episode 93 of the Historic Performance Podcast, featuring Brett Utley, first assistant coach at Rio Grande Valley Football Club. Brett Utley has always been very passionate about soccer. He enjoyed a very successful playing career where he was a two-time All-American and Gatorade Player of the Year in high school. He subsequently went on to play NCAA Division I college soccer at Kronipiak University, and following his collegiate playing career, he played one year professionally in Sweden. After that, he made the transition to coaching, the reason being... I've always had a strong passion for the game of soccer. When I was a player, I accumulated a fair amount of injuries. Most particular, I tore my ACL twice um, in my left knee, and I always felt when I was going through the recovery process the second time that I knew at that moment that when my career was over, I wanted to become a coach. In essence, I've always wanted to just be able to transmit my passion for the game of soccer. And uh, and coaching is, is the perfect way for me to transmit my values that I have in my personal life and also with regards to my values of, of how I see the game of soccer. That is Brett Utley. Brett's burning passion for the beautiful game led him to the MVP School of Coaches in Barcelona, Spain where he did a four-month course studying high-performance soccer and understanding tactical periodization and structured training models. Brett describes this experience as... I felt like if I were to go study the game in Barcelona, I was going to learn the true essence of soccer, and, and that's really what I was after at that particular point in my life in 2015. And it's, it's definitely difficult to put together my experience in in Barcelona into a short statement, but I suppose the way MVP taught their methodology, they inspired each coach. They taught us to dream. Um, they shared their passion with us with regards to the game of soccer, and they truly taught me to respect um, just how complex this game really is. Following his time in Barcelona, in an effort to learn more about physical preparation in soccer, Brett reached out to Dave Tenney at the Seattle Sounders and obtained a fitness coach position with the Seattle Sounders S2, while simultaneously being the head coach for the Seattle Sounders U13 Academy. And that is what leads us to today's conversation, where Brett Utley is going to provide a unique perspective on how he utilizes the information that he gained at the Seattle Sounders in order to act as a link between the technical and performance staff at Rio Grande Valley Football Club, where he works with Patrick Mannix who is their fitness coach, in order to understand player monitoring data and then utilizing that information to design and execute weekly technical and tactical training sessions. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to this episode of the Historic Performance Podcast. I just want to give a warm welcome to Brett Utley, who's the assistant coach at Rio Grande Valley Football Club, which is the second team of the Houston Dynamo, and they play in the USL. Brett, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, James, it's great. Uh, everything's going well, and, and I'm looking forward to the chat. Brett, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast because I think you bring a, a unique perspective in the sense that you are a technical coach, but you've also done the fitness side and uh, been interested in taking a holistic approach to soccer, gain a, a really good understanding of the game. Part of that, you actually went out and worked in Seattle for a time with uh, the USL team and were able to pick the brains of uh, some great individuals in, in sports performance and sports science, people like Dave Tenney 
and uh, Ravi Ramiani, uh, Chad Kalarchik, Sean Muldoon, Jared Phillip. But what did you learn from that experience out in Seattle in terms of sports science and player monitoring? Yeah, I was definitely fortunate enough to have a unique experience in Seattle, learning under those under those great people and also the other coaches that are a part of the club. And that ultimately led to me having a great opportunity and to continue my career with the Houston Dynamo and, and the project that we have going on now with Rio Grande Valley. And one of the most important things that I learned last season with regards to player monitoring was the importance of obtaining and collecting objective and subjective feedback with regards to the training process. So collecting data and one of the most unique things was the fact of how I realized how the data was being used throughout the club and linking the three departments of the technical, medical, and performance staff. So after each training session, we would submit a training report that focused on uh, the GPS metrics and also the heart rate metrics for, for each individual player. I quickly realized that the data was very important with regards to helping to make better decisions or more objective decisions for the next day or in the coming weeks and, and over time. So for instance, say a player was coming back from a hamstring injury and the medical staff was working with the player and he was, say, around 80% healthy. By utilizing objective information such as GPS monitoring, uh, it was clear that everybody in the club could be aware of exactly where that player was say, with regards to their max velocity that they were able to hit on that particular day. And most importantly as well, that that type of information can open up clear conversations with how they could further progress that player within his rehab process to either expedite it if he was feeling feeling pretty well, or if they had to slow it down because he felt a little bit of tightness in that particular area. Another interesting aspect of player monitoring that I realized during my time in Seattle and being exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis was truly the power of data. And there's definitely a way that you have to communicate it in a clear way with regards to how you communicate that to players. I remember being in a very specific conversation with a player on the second team, and he was looking at his numbers. He was over my computer one day when we were when I was uploading the reports. And he, I was showing him he wanted to look at his total distance in a particular game. And I remember very vividly his question said, is that good? And I said, well, first of all, how do you think you played in that particular game? He's like, oh, well, I felt, you know, I played, played pretty well. Felt like that was one of my better games or whatever the specifics that he said. And I just think although the numbers try to quantify what's going on in the field from the physical side, I think we have to ask serious questions with regards to how we can further collect data to get a true sense of what's going on from a positional sense, what's going on from a tactical sense, and what the demands of the game are demanding of each individual player to make better sense of the physical data that it's, that it's pumping out. And I know there's been more and more clubs. I know the German Federation is quite big into using positional data to get a better understanding of what's going on the, on the training field. But for instance, if I just said to, to that particular player, yeah, you didn't, these numbers aren't too well. But he came back and said he felt like this was one of his best games. Now, all of a sudden, you're trying to explain a very holistic idea like soccer. And you're trying to isolate one specific aspect, which would be the physical side. And now you're making a decision, did this player play well or did this player not play well? And that's where I think the importance of positional data comes in to, to link the physical data with what's actually going on in the game field. Brett, after Seattle, you've had this great opportunity where you find yourself right now as an assistant coach at Rio Grande Valley, and you're working underneath uh, Junior Gonzalez, who who is with you in Seattle too. What information that you gained while you were at Seattle have you been able to now translate at Rio Grande Valley? Yeah, what I what I just alluded to with regards to the importance of a constantly obtaining quality data. 
that was definitely a big takeaway and that's something that we began to implement right from the first day patrick manick is our fitness coach and he's doing a tremendous job collecting daily session rpes um, and also using wellness questionnaires and we get some really reliable and um, honest feedback from the players because we just have open conversations with them with the need for in order to have a more um, individualized and tailored training program that appropriately loads them in a progressive way um, they need to be as honest as possible um, and they know we're never going to use um, the specific their specific answer of that particular day against them we just want honest feedback so we can make better decisions as we move forward uh, from a coaching side um, one of the most beneficial things that patrick has been able to do with the data is um, is develop acute to chronic workload ratios that he submits to us at the end of each microcycle. So we have a clear understanding of what the players did in that particular week and how that how that correlates to what they've been doing in the previous four weeks. So we try to continually to progressively overload as the season goes on. And so we know we don't want to have too high of spikes in one week relative to the previous week because that's how we know through the literature it says that's how you can increase the the, the likelihood of an injury based on too quick of spikes so he does it in a very clear and concise way that that makes our job a bit easier with regards to training or sorry programming that next week's that next week's training session or, se- or training microcycle i should say as you mentioned you you have a great fitness coach in Patrick Mannix, and and he's sending information to you on a daily basis. In what format is he sending those session RPEs and acute chronic ratios so that it's easy for you to understand? And as a coach, you kind of alluded to what you're doing from the acute chronic standpoint, but from a session RPE standpoint, as a coach, what are you looking for in terms of the session RPEs? And then how are you utilizing that um, if necessary to modify training. Yeah, he, he definitely communicates what's going on with the session RPEs in a very simple way through just basic bar graphs and basically a color coding system as well. So we clearly recognize what's a hard session or what the players are, are reporting as a hard session, a moderate session, or a relatively easy session. And for us, that just makes it it's a clear visual that we get a, a pretty quick snapshot of what's going on. With regards to the acute to chronic workload ratios, he's just using the basic format of a particular player in this week was, say, a 1.0 or a 1.1 or a 1.2 or a 1.8, and now he's in the danger zone with regards to potentially picking up an injury in the future. So he spells it out pretty clearly to us through conversation as well. And then in the report, he just used, uses the most basic terminology to, say, speak soccer coach language. And um, and then he could even give us some basic recommendations of how we can modify that next week in order to bring down a particular player's acute or chronic load. And one of the simplest ways we've, we've done it, and I'm sure this is no... Um, magic trick but say for instance if a player is overloaded from a chronic standpoint maybe we just for a couple of sessions we utilize him as a neutral type player so we're limiting the volume and the the workload that he's being exposed to um, so he's still involved in the whole session he's still interacting with his teammates and still learning to further learn our style of play but yet we're trying to take necessary actions to to protect the player against himself from picking up an injury um, and I think that's one of the most difficult things as a coach. You have to have a have a wide angle lens to understand that you constantly have to know what's what could anticipate what could be coming next. And maybe you have to protect that one player for one or two training sessions. But in the end, you're going to save time by him not picking up an injury. Sometimes those conversations can be difficult. But as long as they know that we want nothing but the best for them to be healthy and, and be able to compete on a day to day basis, they 
we found that they really respect that. When you went to Barcelona, you with the MVP school, and as part of that, it was learning about their methodology. One one area is integration of all the different departments, which at times professional teams can be siloed. And you also saw a great example of that at Seattle, where there's some great integration between sports medicine, performance, and technical. Have you taken all those experiences to add integration at Rio Grande Valley? Yeah, I think that's one of the most basic uh, reasons why I ultimately studied the physical side of the game. So we can have some more open conversations can exist. And that's definitely something that I picked up in Seattle that that we're trying to, to do here and have just open conversations of how we can truly, truly optimize the training process so we can ultimately achieve great results uh, during competition and do it in a, in a way where uh, the players are are doing it healthy. That's the hardest part is because each, say, department um, have their own different values and goals. Um, so I think early on, it's really important to communicate what each individual department's goals are um, and then figure out a way to make all of those goals formulate into one and grow as one. And that's, I think, data can, can really help that process. So each department knows exactly what's going on on a day-to-day basis. For instance, we've had a couple conversations this year where maybe the players might, might be a little fatigued. However, we need to hit certain tactical topics. So we're going to try to do it in a safe way where maybe we're monitoring the workloads and we're taking longer rests in between each rep on the training field and doing more talking about information of how the players can better read specific situations. So we're not say, essentially wasting a training session, we're still giving the players valuable information, but we're doing it in a way where where we're truly monitoring what is actually happening and the intensity that they're doing it at. So I just think the more uh, open each individual department is and being very clear about what the organization's goals are, I think we can do it in a very integrated way um, and move forward successfully. Within your answer, you mentioned that one of the reasons that you went out to Seattle was so you could have a better understanding of the physiological cost of soccer games and soccer training sessions. So that way you could have more fruitful discussions with other departments. For any other soccer coaches listening to this podcast, why would you recommend that they learn about the physiological impact of soccer games and training sessions? I know, for instance, this past weekend, uh, the conference, the medical conference was going on in Barcelona, and I saw a couple slides popping around Twitter showing the injury rates of, I think, hamstrings and ACLs over the past uh, X amount of years. And you can see how it's like a steady, steady increase um, in injury rates. And I think from the from a basic business perspective, clubs, I think, and coaches want to protect their investments. And at the end of the day, the investment that they're making is in the particular player. And if the player is not healthy um, and can't help you on the field, then ultimately you're not getting a return on that particular investment. One of the, say, foundational um, aspects of why I even began to understand physical preparation was because I always felt like training uh, a training session as a coach, you're prescribing exercise. And I just think it, I always felt like it was important that you probably want to have a general idea of why you're prescribing that particular exercise. And in this case, you're, pre- you're prescribing uh, soccer exercises that are you know, 44 plus 2 or 44 plus 3 or trying to understand what those demands are on that particular player so you can keep doing it in a smart way. And ultimately, that has led me down the road of realizing that by training in a smart way and optimizing the training, the training programs that, that you're prescribing, now you can protect your investments, you can prepare the, 
prepare the uh, excuse me prepare the players in an appropriate way that can optimize performance and and on match day they're able to compete at their at their highest possible level and and help the club win games and win championship i do want to be impartial in this so i want to ask you the flip side to that question do you feel that for individuals working as a soccer strength and conditioning coach that they should have an understanding of the game yeah to be honest i think that's absolutely crucial i mean i think a model that that exists in in Europe is a lot of times that the fitness coach also will have a coaching license or a background in in coaching or either not saying necessarily playing is a necessity I don't I don't think that at all but I just think a pure knowledge of the game and understanding what what the coach's style of play is because for instance if we look at last season with Leicester City their style of play which was a more compact style counterattacking style that is going to be a different that's going to be that's going to require different physical preparation than for instance Liverpool's and Jurgen Klopp style of play which is you know the high pressing game and a lot of transitions and if the co- if the fitness coaches are not helping the coaches plan training to ultimately um, optimize their ideal style of play then I think that's where performance can um, can lack simply because there's a disconnect with what's going on in the training field with regards to what actually is happening on the field and what the coach expects to happen onto the field. So I definitely think just knowing that there's different styles of play and just keep trying to train, keep trying to train your brain to study games and analyze how these different styles of play transfer to the weight room or transfer to the training field and say, okay, well, I know in this particular style of play, for instance, like Arsenal, they have a lot of transitions and high speed running. Okay, so how can we mimic and prepare those players appropriately for that specific style of play. Because if you're preparing them for, you know, a low block, defending, you know, more or less 20 yards outside of your 18, and then ultimately countering attacking for 80 yards, well, that's different to what they're actually doing uh, in the game, if that makes sense. So I just think it's the more integrated and the more knowledge that's going around about the game, because at the end of the day, that's the starting point, is what's happening in the game and what's the... Um, what's the head coach's philosophy? How does he want the team to play? Or how does she want the team to play? And now once we understand that, now we can begin to um, to apply the whole uh, specific adaptations of demand. And you can say, okay, well, this is happening in the game. This is what we need to make sure that we're preparing the players for uh, um, during training and in the weight room. You mentioned the weight room, and um, that is a subject of contention, I would say, in, in, in the world of, of soccer. There's a lot of different opinions, whether players should be in the weight room or whether they can just get their whole physiological adaptations on the field. What is your opinion of it? Where does the, should the weight room be used and what do you see um, the weight room bringing if, if, if that is a, your way? Yeah, I definitely think the weight room is important. However, I also think that probably say if you had to put a percentage on both, I would say definitely optimizing what's happening on the field is has to be priority number one because at the end of the day if you're training you know say you play on a saturday you have sunday say you have sunday monday off and you train tuesday wednesday thursday friday play against saturday well the majority of your week you know about 80 percent of your week is spent on the field so if you're not applying you know sound periodization principles on the training field i'm not sure that the best strength training program in the gym is going to be able to to fix what's going on in the field. So I definitely think that we can increase the buffering zone between performance and injury in the weight room if the training field is not being optimized. However, I think the 
you know, what the goal should be is to optimize training field environment. And then now what you're doing in the weight room is only going to enhance what's going on um, on the training field. And subsequently, the player's performance is going to improve as well. I'm a big follower. I read a lot of stuff that's out there by Mike Robertson. And I know he said a couple times either on his website or in his podcast that he tries to train in the gym what he cannot accomplish on the field. And I think at the basic level, that's that's something that I've always thought about is, okay, well, how can, what can we, what type of movements do we have to train in the gym that the player is not being, being exposed to on the field? So for instance, like last year when I was doing some strength sessions with the guys, a lot of times I would do um, reverse lunges instead of forward lunges because 80% of the time they're running in straight lines and being in that, in the, in those straight line planes, but pretty rarely are they, you know, going into a reverse lunge type pattern. If we can, you know, increase performance that way, and then it's going to have a, a better transfer effect by training movements that obviously to prepare the players for the movements they're going to be exposed to on the field, but while also um, trying to maximize their movement capacities by having them exposed to um, having them exposed to different movements that they're just simply not getting onto the, on the training field to com- to ultimately develop a say a complete athlete or a complete soccer player. The next thing that I want to transition to is actually. Um, the development of a microcycle when you have one game a week. Based on what's going on now at Rio Ground, how do you, as, as a collective team, go about developing the microcycle for that week? Yeah, we we definitely have open conversations. Try to to try to get an understanding of what what Patrick has in mind in terms of what the physical cost should be of each particular day. And then while also Junior and myself are discussing, okay, what are the tactical stuff and the technical stuff that we need to improve on, both with regards to what team itself has to improve on and the individuals have to improve on, but while also keeping in mind of who our next opponent is, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, how can we morph our game model to um, to compete against um, the opponent. So you know, for instance, this week we we had a, a funky week because we had we gave the guys three days off on the weekend because um, we didn't have a game this past weekend and we were in about our 14th week um, and we just felt like it was a good a good time to uh, to let the guys have some time off and and kind of just passively recover. So Monday, in this particular week, we had Monday as a just a re-entry type day where it was low volume and low intensity, but um, we were still able to hit some particular things like specific crossing actions that we wanted to train. And we were able to do that through uh, a specific circuit that we put together. And then we just kind of played uh, we played a, a smaller side of game to just kind of get their juices going again for the week. So now we try to utilize the tactical periodization microcycle with following the, the strength, endurance, speed, activation um, type template that, that they propose. So last night was our, our Tuesday session, and it was our strength session. So we, we did a 4v4 type activity working on our, our zonal defending, which went pretty well. And then we were able to, to kind of open it up a little bit and play 8 versus 8 in, uh, in a relatively a good-sized space where they're still going to be able to elicit not as much change of direction as the 4v4 elicited, simply because the space was a little bit bigger. And we didn't want to overload them, especially coming off of, off of the three-day break. But also it was serving as as a uh you know an activation type session to leading into today and kind of just giving a little snippets of what they're going to be exposed to today which would be a bit larger sided numbers um because it's our endurance day and 
and we're trying to get more velocity type loading in this particular session on a Wednesday. And then when we come to Thursday, that's typically when we get some first team guys coming down. Um, so although it's still it's still tactical and because that's that's definitely the the starting point for us. But now we're reducing the the reducing the space size while keeping a relatively good uh, in terms of uh, player numbers in the box be, or in the exercise box because what we're trying to do is get them to think quicker and more more speed of actions in that type of in that type of environment. While Patrick in the warm up is also going to be doing some type of of just physical speed work that he needs to get accomplished on that particular day. Um, and then Friday, the day before the game, is just some general activation stuff, go over our game principles, um, do some tactical walkthroughs, expose the players to some small-sided games just to get them, re- get them ready and fired up uh, for the game the next day. Uh, and, then we ha- and then we play the game on Saturday. And within this microcycle, if you have a weight room session, typically, do you try to match it up with one specific day? No, right now, so we, we've been, um, because for the most part, we've been playing one game a week. For, there was one week where we had two games on a Saturday and a Wednesday, but for the most part, we've had just games on Saturdays. So the way we've we've really kind of put together an annual plan of you know the different basically taking the season and breaking it up into eight week blocks and figuring out when we need to program in certain things. And in this particular uh, in this particular cycle, we're able to to do two sessions um, with the guys in the gym and. Patrick has it all planned out with regards to the different exercise that he has. But generally speaking, one day would be an upper body type day and another day would be um, a lower body type day to to try to spread it out over the course of the week. Players right now, they seem to uh, they seem to enjoy that. And obviously that that's not always set in stone because we obviously have to go off of the fatigue levels of the guys and also the the amount of games that we're going to be exposed to over the next, say, three, four, five weeks. So we just try to take it one week at a time. And for this particular week, we're able to to get in uh, two more strength sessions, which we're trying to um, increase their uh, resiliency, especially for the the summer months when we know uh, down in southern Texas, it's it's going to be quite hot where we're probably going to have to uh, to adjust training volumes accordingly. Two follow-up questions on the microcycle. The the first one is USL club. So you, as you mentioned, you get, do get some first team guys that perhaps aren't getting first team minutes. So to get them some minutes, they come down to the USL. From a fitness coach perspective, how do you make sure, what type of information should you get from the these first team players to make sure that you're not going to be overloading them in, in these particular sessions based on what they've done with the first team during the week? Yeah, so I know Patrick is is in constant contact with the first team fitness coach. Um, so he's he gets a clear understanding from from GPS metrics and also from uh, session RPE metrics um, and also some wellness questionnaires just to kind of get a general sense of, of what they've done in this particular week and maybe the week before just to know what they are uh, prepared for um, what they've been, been exposed to over the previous, say, 10 days to two weeks. But to be honest with you, that comes down to that's that's on that's one of Patrick's main responsibilities is that communication level to ultimately get it transmitted to to, to junior and i because you know like you said we don't want to we don't want to have the guys fly down because you have to take about a one hour flight from houston to McAllen. there's more stress levels with that with the flying and dehydration all those things so we try to be pretty cautious with that you know for instance if if they fly down the day before the game maybe on that friday when we're playing uh, some small sided games maybe we make them uh you know a bumper type player or a neutral player to try to to limit their 
their physical load for that particular day so they're fresh to play in the game but i think as long as i've definitely learned especially and this was um further implanted in my brains in my brain after uh, being part of mvp is that players learn from so many different so do, so many different mediums so the important thing as long as they're a part of our training session in some capacity and they're listening and and observing and picking up different visual cues and further growing their relationships with the guys that are that are uh, assigned to the second team i think i think it's all beneficial um and and players can learn and grow in that particular way it doesn't necessarily have to mean that they have to be a part of every set every minute of every session because that's something that we've implemented this year where when guys come down we, we try to increase the learning curve by going over a specific video with them um, have individual meetings go over what our style of play is show them our game model show them what we're looking for in each phase and moment of the game and then even though maybe they're part of this training session for 15 20 minutes they're still that learning curve over a 48 hour 72 hour window is is we're trying to expedite that as best we can and uh but but most importantly it's thinking about player health and because at the end of the day if we we prioritize a training session or a particular training activity over their performance in the game then then the team's performance can suffer as well so like anything we just try to try to balance it the best that we can and and take as much information that's available um that's communicated and and we try to make the the smartest decision that we possibly can with the players. I actually think you just brought up a really interesting point um, based on your experiences at MVP. So as a strength and conditioning coach, we're taught that when interacting with individuals, trying to figure out the best way they go about learning or learning these specific movements. And yeah, from yeah. a coaching perspective, as you mentioned, you're trying to explain the style of play, the game model, um, what they should be doing at certain transitionary periods throughout the game how do you determine yeah. the best way that that player learns and then what type of styles do you use with different individuals to make sure that they understand the style of play and game model yeah so i mean you know in the particular model that we've built it has a lot of different um, animations within within the document and so they can get a clear they get the description that we've uh, that we've written down and they also get the visual of you know where the players are positioned and how they how they move on the animation of the slide so that's that's one way so we're trying to get both reading and also the visual component um, but then from there is basically something that i that i've done is create basically a, a video folder of different actions that take place in different games from around the world and so if i know for instance that we need our wingers to be I don't know. Say we want our wingers to be playing more central. Now I can show specific clips of, say, one of the best wingers in the world doing a specific action that the players are probably going to be exposed to in the game when they're in this type of position. So now you're trying to relate to the player because, you know, in, in one of the main uh, tactical periodization books that I've read, they, they talk about you need to get the players to know about know-how. Um, and I know that's kind of wordy and that's getting translated from Portuguese, but the reality is is that sometimes players act in a way that they don't, they're not actually reading the situation or cognitively thinking about the situation. They're just doing it. So now, once by giving them either one small video or one small description or one small conversation, now they can change their complete perspective on that. For instance, the other day I was working with a uh, with our center back on a specific pass technique that we were trying to train um, that I think that he can improve and, and he feels like he needs to improve on it. So I'm trying to help him. So basically, what I did was I cut different video clips of top players in the world 
doing this particular pass. And I've explained to him that each player is going to have a different technical execution because their their limbs are different, their affordances are different, their the way they you know rotate their hips is different. But the important thing is, I brought to him different context that the that the pass was being executed in and we had a conversation yesterday after i sent him the video and he's like oh well you know typically anytime i've seen this pass i always just was focusing on the what meaning the specific technical action instead of thinking about what is the context that that pass is being played in sometimes the player needs this type of pass to the ball to feet or this type of pass the ball into space and by changing um their perception um or opening their field of vision on what actually is going on in the situation can can spark some of their own thinking and their own creativity. And now they they grow a new, uh, say, technical um, execution that's specific to them, specific to their affordances, specific to their you know degrees of freedom and all that sort of fun stuff. So I just think it comes down to like anything we hear is having individual conversations with players and truly getting in a, a sense of how does a particular player respond. Um, how do they learn best? Is it a conversation on the field with you and the ball and in the player and you're trying to use all these different hand gestures and movements to try to paint the picture for them as best as possible? Or is it saying, you know what, I'm just going to show you a clip of Iron Robin doing a particular action because there's not many people in the world better than him doing that specific action for your specific position. So I'm just going to stay out of it and I'm going to let, let the game be the teacher and show how, you know, Iron Robin does a particular particular action if that makes sense so um there's definitely like anything there's a lot of different modalities and i guess the art of it is trying to figure out what's the best one for the particular situation and to be honest i think that only comes from conversations and experience and knowing and truly understanding the players that are on your team that you're that you're coaching brett you mentioned that um you've created an annual plan at rio grande and the annual plan has broken up into eight week segments one thing that I've I've noticed working in, in soccer is that the annual plan looks great when things are going well. You're winning games, uh, player enthusiasm is high. But then a lot of this tends to go out the window when you start racking up a couple of losses. Um, sometimes the head coach will start saying, oh, the players aren't fit enough. And all of a sudden the, the physiological costs go out the window. Based on your experience, how do you find a, a fine balance with that when when your team isn't doing so well? Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a hard question and I think coaches of all areas, they like to be we like to be as prepared as possible. And so when I say annual plan, I mean we definitely take it from you know, we look at the season as a whole and we say, Okay, where are the majority of our games coming from? You know, what types of weeks do we have where we're playing three games in a week or two games in a week or one game in a week? And so we're trying to have we have specific goals while looking at the whole viewpoint of the whole season. But that doesn't mean by any means that we said, OK, yeah, we have every training session planned from now until October 14th, which is our last game. No, that's not true. And I don't think that's even possible because there's so many variables that go into play with planning a training session and, and planning activities based on the player availability, players coming down, academy players coming up, or whatever the case may be. I think the key is that we have specific goals and targets that we like to to hit in order to try to optimize our performance. And one of the things that we're doing this year is basically tracking all of our training sessions Um and having a very clear idea we have an i keep them in a notebook and i keep them on my computer um so we know exactly the the sessions that we've that we've done and 
with that, what Patrick is doing as well is he's created these these like I said the eight week cycles, and then so at the end of a uh, at the end of a cycle or a report, we're able to look at and say, okay, well, these are the different physical or physiological numbers that we hit with regards to what training is. This is how many topics that we hit in the training session. So, for instance, what we're trying to do is just get a a, a clear picture of what happened in that particular eight weeks. Um, and now we can make better informed decisions in the next eight week cycle. So, you know, say for instance, if we, if we looked at our, our previous eight week cycle and we said, okay, well, the majority of our, of our training sessions, say 80% of our training sessions were focused on the topic of, uh, say just our offensive principle in the final third of the field. Well, if that was only, if that was for 80% of those particular training sessions, well, we clearly didn't balance that particular eight week cycle out because we spent so much time in the final third, but now we can correlate that with to results and saying, okay, are we scoring goals? Or are we not scoring goals? Are we giving up goals or not? So now we can, now we can make better informed decisions about the training sessions that we program for the next eight weeks. So I think the key is just having a holistic viewpoint and understanding the physical and trying to blend this, what everyone keeps talking about is the physical, tactical, technical, and psychological component, um, the components of soccer. And now if we if we have a clear sense of okay well we worked maybe too much in one microcycle or one mesocycle on defending and we're not we're not scoring a lot of goals okay so now we can try to to try to make some slight improvements in the final in the next cycle because at the end of the day like you mentioned we don't want to just blame one you can't blame one particular aspect of the game because the game is not isolated the game is the whole the game is complex the game is too complex systems competing against one another to create this crazy hyper complex um, environment when you have these two systems competing against each other with the fans and the pressure and the media and all these things there's there's way too many variables at play to say no this is the reason why we didn't get a result or this is the reason why that we didn't score a goal because there's so many uncertainties in soccer and I think the training process at the basic level is just we're trying to reduce the uncertainty that the players experience in the game. And that's why we're trying to to track uh, specific topics and specific areas of our game model that we're training. So we're trying to, at the end of the day, we always want to try to have a, a complete or no team's ever complete, but say a, a, a complete training process where we're we're not favoring one particular um, moment of the game or one particular phase of the field more than the other because they're all interconnected um, and it's really, really difficult to, to separate them. So I just think, you know, it's the more information you collect and you understand what's going on on the, on the training field, what your topics that you're hitting, um, what, are the phys- what are the physical costs of that. Um, and like I said before, the more information you have, the better informed decisions that you can make and they're not you're kind of taking the bias out of it because you could say, oh, well, say you're giving up a lot of goals. Say you're giving up, you know, three goals a game. And then you correlate your training sessions and you say, oh, well, we're giving up three goals a game because uh, all we're doing is training the offense. But if you're tracking what you're doing in training and you look at your training sessions and say, well, wait a second, for these eight weeks, we trained defense for a defensive topic was for 80% of the time. So now you're taking the bias out of it or you're feeling out of it and you have you're trying to create objectivity within a subjective environment. The final question that I have for you, as an assistant coach, there's a lot of different variables that you have to keep in mind. And there might be times that a player might be slightly overloaded. Uh, they need to push through fatigue. There's obviously a slight possibility of increased injury risk potential. 
Um, where right. is that fine line between using the data to rein players in or making informed decisions to allow that player to push through that fatigue? Yeah, I mean, we definitely try to use, you know, scientific backings to to help program our, our training environments. And, you know, one of the one of the researches that we that Patrick and I and Junior, we look at a lot. And I mean, I read a, a lot of his articles as is uh, Tim Gabbett. Um, and I think it's just important that if you have a if you have a true sense of what what the player has done, what the player is prepared for, um, and then you can make a better informed decision of whether or not that player should is experiencing fatigue and they need to be progressively overloaded, or if they're experiencing fatigue because they've done so much in such a short period of time that they're not able to be appropriately loaded and ultimately increase performance, and rather than now they're um, probably more apt to pick up an injury. So I just think it's you know, those are the two questions that I think are really, really important is, you know, what is he prepared to do? And then if you're able to figure out what is he prepared to do or what she prepared to do, then you can make, you can answer the next question is, okay, should you pull the reins back on the player and protect the player from themselves? Or can you encourage the player and say, no, you can push through this particular part? Because at the end of the day, that's what training is, right? It's, you got to progressively overload them to get the adaptations that you need to in order to increase performance and increase the their resiliency rate um, to injury, so they definitely need to be exposed to that because the game's going to be chaotic and they're going to be there's going to be a lot of uh, the physiological cost of it, of each game is obviously different. You know, I remember Tim Gabbett saying in a paper, he's, you know, prepare them for the I guess the worst case scenario. The important thing is preparing them for the worst case scenario at the appropriate time that they're able to handle that particular to that particular load, so their performance can rise and. Um, their likelihood of, of injury can decrease. Follow-up question on that, because as a coach, now you need to relay this information to the player. And sometimes yeah. a player may not want to be reined in. How do you go about doing that? Like, how how do you communicate with the player so that they understand that you have their best interest in mind? At the end of the day, that's it. And I think by by being a second team to, by being a second team of an MLS club, I think it's, you can always say in your back pocket and then it's the truth is that a friend of mine that was uh he was a strength coach in professional baseball and professional basketball and and he always they said that in baseball they had a saying that you don't make the big leagues by being in the trainer's room you make the big leagues by being on the field and performing well so at the end of the day it could just comes down to transmitting your transmitting your your want for the player to get to the highest level they possibly can and for us that's to help these players get reach their dreams of getting to the first team. And by always having their best interests at heart, at that particular moment, yeah, they might be sad because you know they want to play and they want to have fun with their friends, and I completely understand that. Um, but when you explain it into a way that they know, you know, our players know, for instance, that we have very meticulous planning. Um, we're very particular with how we want things to run because we want to try to make sure that we have a high, a high rate of player availability. And the more times, the more... Uh, percentage of player availability we have the more likelihood that we can experience uh, stability on the field in terms of you know styles of play and performance and results and all of those things that come together so it just comes from having an honest conversation with the player and if they know that we're truly caring about them then I think at the end of the day for that particular day they that they're not participating in training they they understand and they're probably going to feel fresh the next day and they're going to be able to to perform even better that day the next day that they had off because you know they're just more recovered and they feel they feel better one thing i've noticed especially in from my own experience as a as a player in, in the college system and what i the crazy stupid things i put my body through in terms of training is like 
I don't I don't think I ever really truly knew what it felt like to play completely fresh and fit I guess you could say I always felt like you know you see online all the time like you know work hard play hard you know have that you know resilient or grit mentality and it's just like at the end of the day like the smarter you train if you take one day off is that really going to to impact everything that you've done say over the previous three four weeks or what you've done for the rest for the uh, previous time period of your life like no the answer is no so it's you know as players we had we have very nearsighted vision and i think it's the job of the coach to have a very open and futuristic viewpoint of that of the particular player in the particular situation so you can make the best decision possible for both player health and and team performance because maybe you take a risk on a player and you say oh you know what yeah you can go play and then if that particular player you know picks up uh you know a small quad injury or a hamstring injury or a calf injury and he's out three weeks. Well, that one day that you wanted to rest him to get his system back to say equilibrium, now it's gone for three weeks. Um, so those are obviously the, like I said before, in one of your earlier questions, that's um, that's comes down to to protecting your investment. And in this particular world, it's protecting protecting the players because those are the those are the people that you're investing in. Um, to ultimately help you give results on the field. Brett, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. If anybody wants to reach out to you or connect with you to discuss anything you mentioned in the podcast, what's the best way they can do so? Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, you can definitely contact me via email. Um, my email is butley at houstondynamo.com. Um, I also have a, a soccer website that I try to post different information, whether it's different views that I have or just sharing different articles or podcasts that are out there. And that's just togsoccer.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Brett Utley. Definitely feel free to reach out. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a, I'm a soccer junkie and a soccer nerd and I like learning about all things. So definitely if there's anyone out there that wants to discuss anything that I talked about or other different things that they've been, they've been contemplating, um, or thinking about, then definitely, Definitely get in touch, and uh, and I'd love to be a part of that conversation because I think that's that's the best part of uh, of social media and and podcasts and and coaching is that uh, people from all over can can connect and feel like you're you know you're right next to the person. So definitely don't be bashful, and, and I'm looking forward to uh, to connecting with anyone that reaches out. Absolutely, and I'm gonna make sure to link all that information in the show notes. That way, it makes it easier for individuals to reach out to you. Yeah, that'd be great. And uh, James, I appreciate you uh, having me on the podcast and humbling to be uh, to be a guest with regards to all the other previous guests that you have. And um, and you do great work. So definitely wish you all the best uh, moving forward with the podcast. Thanks, Brett. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing a bit of a different perspective than I've had in the past because um, I very rarely had a person who has done coaching and and both the fitness side and the, the technical side. So thanks for um, sharing your your knowledge and information. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll definitely speak again soon. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Next week on the Historic Performance Podcast, I interview Mike Cantrell. He is a faculty member at the Postura Restoration Institute. And I ask him a very important question that I know many of you are probably wondering. What exactly is Postural Restoration Institute, or PRI? In, in a nutshell, postural restoration is nothing more than biomechanics and understanding biomechanics and human kinetics and movement from the perspective 
that humans are asymmetrical and that asymmetry is not accounted for anywhere else in any other school of thought. Be on the lookout for Mike Cantrell's podcast next week. If you listen to the show on iTunes and you enjoy it, I'd greatly appreciate it if you were to either leave a review or rating. It only helps others discover the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at Historic Perform or find any previous episodes on the website historicperformance.net. I'll see all of you next week.